We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're coming to you from the Four Patriots studio. At Four Patriots, they value freedom and self-reliance, and they give you and your family the tools to do so. Visit fourpatriots.com. That's the number, fourpatriots.com. Use the discount code WARRIOR for 10% off your first order. It's estimated that between one in four persons in our country have a mental health diagnosis. What that means for the men and women of our local law enforcement is the likelihood that they'll encounter someone having a mental health crisis is highly, highly likely. Now, unfortunately, very often that results in tragedy and certainly misunderstanding. Thankfully, the way our officers are dealing with these situations has changed over the years. Today, we're going to talk with someone who is at the forefront of that effort. Ernie Stevens wore the badge for 28 years, 26 of those years, with the San Antonio Police Department. While there, he served in patrol, the DUI unit, tactical response unit, and did field training. He's founder of the Mental Health Unit, where he pioneered innovative training dealing with citizens experiencing mental health issues. He's also the author of an Amazon number one bestseller titled Mental Health and De-Escalation, A Guide for Law Enforcement Professionals. Along with his partner, Joe Smarrow, uh, Ernie was featured in the Emmy Award winning HBO documentary Crisis Cops. We're very pleased to have him joining us today. Ernie, welcome to American Warrior Radio. Been honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, Ernie, word on the street is that you initially signed up for the crisis intervention training just because you wanted to get the weekend off. True fact. In fact, I didn't sign up. My partner signed me up for the training on my day off. But uh, the reward was you do get a weekend off prior to a week-long training. And I, I get the sense that you, I mean, you literally asked your commander or told him, I don't want to do this. And they said, too bad. It's you know too late. You're signed up. The, the checks are cut. So you just kind of wandered in there not really expecting much. Yeah, reluctantly, well, I did not want to initially go to crisis training. I didn't know what it was about. Um, when I found out it was about interacting with people in a mental health crisis, uh, the fear really escalated because I had no formal training in dealing with people with a mental health crisis. In fact, I didn't even know what a mental health crisis really looked like or how it uh, presented so I went in with a lot of um, preconceived ideas of what mental health was. And coming from a, a tactical unit and going to this type of training, I really just wasn't interested at all in the course. Well, about what year was this, Ernie? This was 2003. The Houston Police Department came to San Antonio. We had never had mental health training before. So they brought the concept of what's known as the Memphis model, where CIT training originated, and really, it's a 40-hour week-long course in uh, mental health crisis and de-escalation, a lot of role-playing. And then when they were done, we took the curriculum and then used what resources we had here in San Antonio and adapted that. So as I understand it, you were, you're going through this training. You didn't really want to be there. But then and, and in watching the, the Crisis Cops, a documentary, there's a real powerful scene where I think uh, there was a couple of women speaking to look like an academy training class. And, and one of the women was talking about her, um, I think she heard multiple voices on occasion. She was trying to explain and get through to these young cadets about what that's like being inside of her head. But there was also a presenter at, at the initial train that you took 
who had a son with schizophrenia. And tell us that story because that, that's so powerful that that literally changed your, your trajectory of your career. It, it did, Ben. In fact, that, that provided the aha moment for me that I needed to have while I was at the training. Uh, the first three days of the training was a lot of PowerPoint, a lot of different doctors coming in and talking about diagnoses and medications. And, of course, the role playing is really no fun uh, if, if, you don't want, if, you know, if you don't want to partake in that. Uh, but you have no choice. So on day four, a lady from the community came in. Uh, her name is Janine Owens, um, about 65 years old. She had partnered with the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI. And she came in to tell her story about her son, her adult son who has schizophrenia, and her fear in calling the police. Because the only outcome she thought would happen if she called the police was they would end up coming to the house, being scared or frightened by his behavior because he would become very violent and very loud. And her fear was that the police would shoot and kill her son. You know, it's not that moment was not my aha moment. Then the next moment was what she said. And she said, but if that happens, if you do show up and you shoot and kill my son, it's okay because you have a family to go home to and I want you to be safe and you'll never understand what it's like need to live inside of my son's illness. And it was that statement right there that really just floored me. And, um, you know, we signed up to be law enforcement officers to serve our community, and I couldn't think of a better way than to connect with her after the class to find out, number one, why did she feel that way? And number two, what could what could we do about it to change outcomes? There was a, I want to say it was a 2016 article in The Atlantic that featured you and your partner. And at that time, they cited a figure, Ernie, of 100,000 persons, 100,000 persons diverted from jail or emergency rooms by the San Antonio Police Department Mental Health Program. What was that number when you eventually retired, do you know? Well, I don't know. But what they did was the Center for Healthcare Services, which is the local mental health authority in Bear County, um, they were capturing the data to try to do a longitudinal study on the um, cost analysis of what it was costing taxpayers each time an officer had to do an involuntary commitment and respond to somebody in crisis. And that included uh, not only diverting them from the jail, but also what was the cost at the emergency room front door, the treatment, the back end part of this service, and the costs were astronomical. So the training really is devised, one, is to put the patient, they need to go involuntarily, in the correct spot for immediate treatment and not have to wait for a, a mental health bed to become available or get moved around from facility to facility waiting on the judge's order to make this happen. The de-escalation process could actually take place in the field and then you partner with your health authority to try to develop resources for that patient. Ernie, I, from the, again, from the documentary, I'd seen, and, and granted, I, I know how these things work. They take a whole bunch of stuff and try and uh, you know, melt it down into one chunk of, of video food that people can digest. But I don't recall seeing the documentary. Very often it was just you and your partner. And I didn't see, except for maybe one scene where you're checking back in on someone that you had interacted with, or that there seemed to be any other professionals involved. Generally, we've got just a couple minutes before the break, but I want to talk about the, the actual practical logistics of this, because do you know, you've since retired, would you have a guess at all, Ernie, of what percentage of departments around the country are now using some form of this de-escalation training and, and specifically trained 
police officers? Yeah, I don't have the specific numbers, but I'll, I'll tell you this. The training um, has spread, which is good. However, the average police department um, in, in the United States of America that is under 25 officers per agency, if you think of a very small rural area. So for them to be able to free up an officer or a deputy to go to a 40-hour training uh, it's very unlikely. So the training becomes watered down over time. And it's more like, hey, we're going to just check this box and say we gave you a mental health first aid class and kind of bless you and get you out there on the street, which really does a disservice not only to the officer but to the community. So um, fortunately, the Bureau of Justice Assistance has given out grants uh, that now in my new position I get to oversee the technical assistance to help smaller agencies or large agencies partner with their local mental health authorities to develop these co-responder-type units. Bernie, we'll come back. I want to have you explain to us, us civilians out there what this actually looks like on the ground when it's implemented and talk a little bit more about the successes that I believe not only are, are making our fellow citizens safer, but also are helping the men and women who wear the badge as well. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia, here on American Warrior Radio. We're talking to Ernie Stevens. He was one of the cops featured in the award-winning HBO documentary, Crisis Cops. Stick around. We'll be right back. Don't forget, over 500 podcasts at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with Ernie Stevens. Ernie spent 28 years wearing the badge, most of it with the San Antonio Police Department. And while there, he, I don't know if pioneered is the right word, Ernie, but you certainly were a key factor in developing a very successful mental health unit there in, in San Antonio. Let me ask you about this, because normally, been in law enforcement, like in the military, you know, you got a lot of type A personalities. There is a command structure. And I'm guessing it wasn't that easy for Officer Ernie to come out of this training and say, okay, we're going to start this unit, uh, give me a bunch of money, Mr. Police Chief, and, and let's go forth and conquer. Well, so what you were right next to me as I was trying to come up with my <laughs> strategic plan. Um, you're right. It was not easy. Uh, but the training that I took in 2003, it, it changed my life. I knew at this point. It was something I really wanted to pursue. I wanted to get a mental health unit started for the community of San Antonio. I thought that if we could come up with some specialized training that officers could take and be very uh, specific in their role in dealing with people in a mental health crisis, one, it would lower use of force. Two, um, we would be able to reduce the repeat callers that would call in time and time again and hopefully at the same time develop inside-facing a strategic plan for lowering the suicide numbers within the professional law enforcement. So you're right. Um, at the patrolman level, you're only allowed to be as smart as your rank. So if the idea doesn't belong to a chief, it's going to take a while to manifest and for it to become his idea or her idea. And that's kind of what happened. It took about five years from the time I took the training until the time the chief uh, went ahead and pulled the trigger on starting what he called at the time a pilot project. 
of the mental health unit where it just consisted of me and one other officer uh, for the entire city of 2 million people. So we were quite busy, but it gave us a framework of kind of where to begin and then how, what expansion would look like over time. Regular listeners know, Ernie, I actually, I have a criminal justice degree as well. I thought I wanted to be a police officer, but a few ride-alongs and two years at the local county jail changed my mind. How often, on average, would you say that a law enforcement officer encounters someone in the middle of a mental health crisis? Not, not, a, not a criminal, just somebody having that really off day. Is that once a day, twice a day, 10 times? I, mean, I, I think I read somewhere you and, and your partner were doing 11, 12, 13 interactions a day. Yeah, I mean, because we are specifically responding to nothing but mental health calls. For your average patrol officer, you know, I've seen numbers anywhere between 20 and 30% of the call load that they're going to respond to is somebody that's lost the ability to cope in a situation that's now caused some type of crisis. These things will happen in just a regular disturbance and a family disturbance, all the way to a, a drug-induced psychosis, a lot of times they get called out for So. Yeah, these are more and more prevalent. I think now that we're being able to look at what a true mental health crisis is and capture that data, we'll be able to have accurate numbers here very soon. And how important was it that the it wasn't just you and your unit? And eventually the unit grew to about, what, 10, 12 officers? Now they're at 20. Because <laughs> I waited till I left. And they said, hey, let's have a party and really expand this unit. So you have 20 officers, you have two detectives, and three clinicians that are assigned to the San Antonio Mental Health Unit. Or any other way I look at that is it took four people to replace you. It is exactly how I see it. <laughs> how, uh, my point is how important, because when an officer first gets dispatched, and, and I saw an example of this in one of the, in my research, they get a call of someone with a knife. And in this, this case, it, was, it happened to be a woman who was, was cutting herself. Well, as a police officer out there, I go to my screen in my patrol car, and that word knife jumps out of me. So right away, my adrenaline's pumping. I'm gearing up for a you know a potential violent confrontation. How important was it to your success to actually get out and train your fellow patrolmen to say, look, here's what you look for. Here's what you don't necessarily. I'm basically de-escalation. Yeah, so, I mean, you're right. The word knife should jump out, right? That's a huge red flag. But what didn't jump out on the page to you right away was she's cutting herself. So where's the danger, right? Where's the imminent danger within this call? It's to the individual that is causing this bodily harm to themselves. It's so difficult, right? Because I don't ever want to put an officer in a situation to say, hey, you know, just throw all your tactics out the window and go up and hug everybody because that's everybody just needs a, a show of love. That's not what the training is about. Um, it's about space. It's about distance. It's about your voice control. It's about utilizing your listening skills and not so much your, your talking skills, all right, because you need to focus on the person and not the problem. The problem is always emotionally charged at some point during the crisis. But if you can focus on the person, then what you'll realize is you'll make a connection over worrying about the correction of what's going on, and that's where true empathy is really created in the essence of de-escalation. You know, one of the things that really jumped out at me in watching the documentary, Ernie, and then and doing my show prep on, on what you and your fellows are have done and are doing is just the, you know, thankfully a lot of us, this has not been an issue in our lives or in our family. We're, we're you know, God bless, perfectly healthy. But I got to thinking about the the training. So I assume it's still pretty standard in the academy. You teach the officers to use the, the authoritarian, the command voice. You know, you're very loud. 
You're very direct. And I'm thinking about someone like maybe someone that has autism. That command voice is actually putting them over the edge. That's that's a very scary thing. And and bless them, they're they're in this this body and they don't understand. They're confused. And how quickly it just how tragically that can get out of control. Yeah, and that's the importance of the training, right? Because we'll bring in experts from the community, usually a doctor in their field of expertise, and we'll talk about autism. Uh, we'll talk about dementia and Alzheimer's. We'll talk about the organic brain diseases that could look or manifest like a mental health diagnosis. A lot of times what appears to be a mental health crisis is really a drug-induced psychosis or vice versa. So it's so important that you know, you know, who, you, who do you collaborate with when you're building out these cross systems of care. You know, you've got to have your local mental health authority there. You need the clinical aspect of it. But are you also partnering with your fire department and your medics? Mm. Because so much can be determined through a, a medical triage on a patient out in the field to really help you narrow down exactly what you're dealing with. And as I understand, Denver has uh, started a program, I think they call it the STAR program, where it is it's mostly being delivered by the first responders along with some clinicians, and that's been very successful so far as from what I can tell. Yeah, the Denver Star is very unique, um, much kind of like Cuckoo. So in Denver, they have several options that they can dispatch out to a scene. They have a co-responder team, which is an officer paired with a mental health professional that can respond to a mental health crisis, or they have the Denver Star program, which is a in a, an EMT medic paired with a clinical professional. So you take law enforcement completely out of it and you send them to the very low risk um, type of calls for mental health crises or vagrants or maybe a person that appears to be unhoused and is disheveled and is looks confused. What we've seen out there, and I've been to Denver and I've looked at this this program out there, is they have really saved a lot of money by building out what's called a community responder program, and that's known that's Denver Star. And you take law enforcement out of these programs, they're known as community responder programs. And these types of programs are becoming more and more prevalent that Albuquerque just doubled the size of their community responder program up to 100 people now. on it. So it's, it's, it's a big, big uh, push that we're seeing nationwide. Ernie, we've got to take another break. I want to talk more about that evolution and how uh, all of us listening around the country to American Warrior Radio might be able to get this going in their community. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. We're coming to you from the Ford Patriots studio. At Ford Patriots, they value freedom and self-reliance, and they give you and your family the tools to do so. Visit FordPatriots.com. That's the number, FordPatriots.com, and check out all their great uh, materials they can use to help your family become more safe and self-sufficient. Use the code WARRIOR on your first order for a 10% discount. We're talking with Ernie Stevens. Ernie's a 28-year veteran of law enforcement. He and his partner were featured, uh, Joe Smar, were featured in the Emmy Award-winning HBO documentary, Crisis Cops. I know that's still available if you're subscribing to HBO, or you can probably find it somewhere else. I'd highly recommend you watch it, because there's a lot of lessons in there, even for those of us who do not serve in the military or carry a badge, and frankly, just a lot of lessons about how we should be treating our fellow human beings. 
Ernie, I saw a, uh, I think it was a TED Talks that, that Joe did. He was very nervous, bless his heart. But he talked about, um, he mentioned the phrase, I see you, and how important that was and the work that you all did. I volunteered for 10 years with a, a nonprofit that worked with homeless teens and street kids. And one of the first things they taught us about, and I don't know, you know, I know at least in my flagship station, homelessness has, has become a real issue. But I'll never forget one of the things the national office taught us was, you know, you don't have to give somebody money. You don't have to spend the day with them. You don't have to buy them a meal. Uh, you know, do do as you want. But the, the thing you can do that makes such a difference is look them in the eye and, and acknowledge them. Don't just walk past them or look through them. Just by acknowledging there's another human being there next to you who's going through some problems can gain you know, huge gains from that. And that's sort of what I took from, uh, from, from Joe's comments on TED Talks about I see you. And I talk a little bit about that if you don't mind, I'm hoping, Ernie, that maybe all of us will get a free seminar here from you uh, <laughs> as much as possible. But you do, in one of the films I saw, you did an experiment when you're talking about multiples. And you had a fellow stand up, and then you had like four or five other classmates stand around him and just start jibber-jabbering, just whatever, you know, what they had for lunch. or what. And that gave an example of what some of these people might be hearing inside their own head. And then you stepped in and more calmly try to get them to focus on your voice, not those other five voices in their head. And what a great example. Yeah, you know, well, first of all, thank you. Uh, I, I appreciate the, the, the comments. Um, you know, when Joe, when Joe spoke, spoke about I see you, what he really is trying to you know explain to people when they're in their crisis is, look, you're wearing this mask, this representative self that you want me to see, whether you want to act tough or you want to do this, you want to do that. But I can see you. Because I know what trauma looks like, because Joe, if you watch the documentary, he talked about his own trauma mm -hmm. that he's been through in his life. And not a spoiler alert, but he's been through um, domestic violence situations. He was um, a child of abuse, a child of sexual abuse. And what makes him so good at what he was doing at the time when we were working together was that he went to the VA and he got help. And he said, look, I can't sing you. You just need to be vulnerable with me and authentic. And we'll be able to connect, right? And he, that it, it really works well, and it takes a true understanding of what trauma truly is. Trauma is not what happens to you. Trauma is what happens inside of you as a result of what happens to you. So when you can understand that as an officer, I, I kind of use the analogy, you know, when a medic goes to a call, they put on rubber gloves because they assume that the patient they're going to deal with could have a communicable disease. What I ask the officers to do is, hey, put a, put a glove on your mind, right? Glove up your brain and think for a moment that the person in crisis is dealing with some type of unprocessed trauma that they just haven't got help with yet. And now you're that voice and you're that tool or the vessel to get them to the next, um, um, you know, treatment, treatment plan or care. So that, that's the whole essence behind the ICU. And, and, uh, the training that you're talking about, that was actually done with a school district of over 100 uh, school administrators and counselors and nurses, and they were so willing to uh, and excited to talk about all the trauma and all the mental health issues that they see within the schools because they wanted to learn more about it, and they wanted to know how do we connect with these kids and what, what do they experience when they're hearing hallucinations or delusional thinking. So they, you'll see parts of that in the film, and uh, and I also write about it in my book as well. So. Again, these are very important tools uh, for officers and first responders to learn.
You know, Ernie, it's interesting you say that. I was listening to the radio coming down here to do do today's show, and I think it was an AMA uh, figure that was talking about post-COVID. Where they're now seeing up to 500 young persons a day that are, are reporting some sort of, of mental health distress, and that's 500 a day. I don't do math in public, but that adds up to a whole a whole ton. Have Have you seen this situation? get more challenging and more prevalent because of the pandemic? It was huge. It was a huge explosive amount of people in crisis. But the good thing that came out of it, I will say this, was when you, if I dealt with you pre-COVID and needed to get you in to see a psychiatrist, it could take three, four, five months to get you an appointment. With the advent of technology and these Zoom calls and telemed, uh, we were able to process a patient into care and treatment with a doctor, sometimes within that same week. So there were pros and cons of COVID. Um, we're still seeing the fallout effect of it. The suicide rate is still high among adolescents. And it's just something we we're still trying to learn how to navigate and find out what are the best types of resources that we can bring into a community. One of my big fears, Joe, is... is um being trapped in my own body. I almost would rather be killed than, than be a quadriplegic. And I was thinking in the context of, of your work and the documentary, just how horrible that would be to not only be trapped in your own body, but to be trapped in there with eight other personalities. And just the, the compassion that is necessary as you're standing there, and, and particularly given your generation, Joe, I'm, I'm guessing you know escalation of force was probably the main thing you discuss at the academy, not necessarily... Uh, mental health counseling, and uh, just uh, I, I bless you for the for the passion, the compassion that you and your partners are showing, and, and for helping spread this hopefully across the country. Well, I, I appreciate it, and you know when I first took the training, I I like these thought, you know, of these voices, you know, how real is this? You know, is it, you know, come on, like is this a real thing? And then they showed an X-ray of an individual that walked into an emergency room, and he had stuck an ice pick through the side, went into his ear, into his head, and walked into the ER complaining of a headache. And they're like, well, hold on, you have a handle of something coming out of the side of your head here. And he had stuck an ice pick in, and they asked him, what what happened to you? Did you get attacked? He goes, no, the voices wouldn't stop, and I just couldn't take it anymore. Mm. So when you see things, and you're like, okay, I get it now. Um, what do I do in scenarios like this? And that's what the training is really there to help you uh, refocus a person, de-escalate a, a situation the best you can. But more importantly, find out what resources are available to you because most officers just don't know. So, ladies and gentlemen, the, the documentary, again, is called Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops. Sorry, Ernie, you got me a little choked up here. Uh, just about a minute for our next break. I want to talk when we come back about secondary PTSD because you mentioned that one of your goals was also to help reduce the the um, the suicide rate among law enforcement officers among your comrades and I think that's hopefully this these types of programs are helping that as well uh, just to be clear now I guess it depends around the country Joe but we're not talking you know people raised a big ruckus during the defund the police movement like oh you know oh you're gonna send social workers out to a call versus a cop this is not that correct that's correct no that's that's not at all. What you're what you're trying to do your best is partner with your resources that you have available to you, so you have better outcomes on the back end of these calls. Okay, very good. And the other quick thing I thought is basic, but I never thought of it: the fact that you all just went out and you weren't in uniform. 
you always came to these calls in civilian clothes, and I think that was an important first step in building that trust, right? That was huge. In fact, that's not really done in a lot of places. I think we kind of started that. It, it was my idea when I went to the chief. I said, you know, I want to wear plain clothes and drive an unmarked car because it's hot in Texas. I don't want to wear a uniform and a bulletproof vest all day. So I just kind of threw it out there, and it stuck. But what we realized is, you know, in 12 years of handling these calls, then I never once had to use force. Wow, that's amazing, and that's great. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're talking with Ernie Stevens. We'll talk about secondary PTSD and other issues when we come back. Stick around. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're having a great discussion with Ernie Stevens. Ernie's a former law enforcement officer. He first came on my radar when I happened to stumble across an HBO documentary, an award-winning HBO documentary called Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops, was where they had a crew following around Ernie and Joe while they performed their duties in the city of San Antonio for the San Antonio Police Department. Joe, I, in my interaction with law enforcement, uh, first responders over the years, one of the things that I think a lot of us civilians don't get is that just in the course of your daily work, whether you're a, a police officer, a, a nurse, an emergency room doctor, a firefighter, you're exposed to a lot of trauma. And I mean, just imagine being a firefighter and rolling up on a car accident with a an infant in the vehicle. And after a while, I'm guessing that's sort of like layers of paint dealing every day, every day with people in crisis, and then you have to go home to your family, ideally safely that night. But you, there's no switch. There's no little box that you can put that in. Talk to us a little bit about secondary PTSD and how you see this program allowing your fellow officers to recognize and, and open up and share their vulnerabilities and some of the challenges they might be facing. Yeah, the psychological trauma to first responders in the military is um, it's a real thing, and it's a it's a deadly a deadly epidemic uh, that we see across the United States. And you know, unfortunately, um, I for you, I was there for Uvalde when Uvalde happened here in Texas, and um, all the all the children were were shot. Um, I was sent to the hospital uh, to the University Hospital here in San Antonio to start intercepting the medics and the officers that were arriving so I could kind of pull them off to the side to start the decompression um, phase of, you know, hopefully that once they were done with the transport, give them a little bit of time to decompress and all that's going to be there just to kind of be that that cushion for them. But to hear them talk about, uh, we would start CPR on one kid, and then when we knew this one was gone, we'd push them to the side and start CPR on the next kid, and then they were gone. And then we found one that we could grab, and throw an ambulance and co. You know, you hear these stories and your heart breaks because those images don't go away. Uh, they are there for a lifetime, well, no matter what kind of treatment you're going to get. But for officers and first responders to break the stigma and begin to talk about this and become vulnerable, it will ease the pain. Um, it won't make everything go away. It's, it's not a magic pill to say, hey, we're going to talk about this and everything's going to be great. But it's going to relieve so much of that pressure that hopefully 
uh, we can reduce the number of suicides that's happening within law enforcement and first responders in the military because we have to normalize the conversation. If we don't talk about it and we don't recognize it, and more importantly, the leadership is not bought into the programs that are available to help these men and women, we are failing them as a profession. And we've got to do better because the community demands and is um, they need the best that we have to offer when they call for help. And we have to be at our at our best to respond. Are there, and this may not be a fair question, Ernie, but I got you. So are there, what would be your advice to those of us out there who are not trained, who are civilians, who might encounter a situation like this? Are there, like, your top three do this, or is it not quite that simple? For example, my wife is a, a very talented um, animal behaviorist. And one of the things in, in approaching animals and talking to them is not not approaching them fake, head on, you know, turn to the side so they write them automatically know you're not necessarily a threat. Is there some equivalent in your line of work in dealing with the crisis, dealing with the money crisis? Sure. Is it, I mean, I, I assume calm is the, is one of the first watchwords. Yeah. A lot of it has to really do with your body language. I mean, I hate to say it, but watch. Um, I don't really watch live PD or whatever it's called. But watch it. I guarantee you at some point during an interview uh, or, a dis- or a conversation that the officer is having with somebody, they got one hand on their gun and the other hand kind of laying across the front of their gun belt across their taser. Mm-hmm. Now, for law enforcement, that's just a comfortable position <laughs> to be in. But to somebody that's in a crisis, that's scary and that's threatening. And I got that directly from the community when I would go in and speak to them. Because they'd always ask, why is your hand on your gun all the time? I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm just I'm just laying my arm across it. You know, it's just a comfortable position. So a lot of it has to do with body language, uh, facial expressions, uh, your hand gestures, uh, you know, to continue the conversation or to try to slow the conversation down. It really does have a lot to do with just your, your body language and your ability to listen to somebody and use those short phrases to repeat back so they understand that you're listening and that you're connected to them. So um, if there's, there's good foundational courses. Again, I wrote about them in my book. Um, I try to keep it very simple uh, for law enforcement or really the, the majority of the people are with hospital staff and uh, clinicians because it's just a good way uh, to interact with people in a crisis and try to, try to calm them down, calm the situation down, and keep everybody safe. Ernie, we've got... You know, multiple stations we're broadcasting across the country. I'd be willing to bet that there's lots of law enforcement officers, active law enforcement officers listening now. If they want to reach out to you and contact you about maybe getting something like this started in their community, how do they do so? Uh, a few ways. Uh, you can reach me through my website at erneststevens.com. Stevens is spelled with a V. Uh, you can send your questions or inquiries to there. I'm on LinkedIn as well. And then I'm on Twitter at eStevens0845. Uh, any, any of those social media platforms, LinkedIn, um, or directly to the website would be a great way to do it. And I promise I will get back to you. Ernie, I'm, I'm so excited that you're still doing this and still engaged. And uh, what what is the responsibility of the rest of us, the civilians out there, the nonprofit organizations, the legislators? I It breaks my heart when I see a situation turn bad, turn deadly, when it turns out that they were off their meds because they couldn't get them anymore or they couldn't afford them. And to me, that's that's our fault as a society. What What is your advice for just the general folks out there listening on how we can engage and stay engaged in our communities and helping you 
and your fellow officers make this a success? Yeah, well, everything from the national level to the state level. I mean, I look at Texas. Texas is not a Medicaid expedition state, so that can cause um, the inability for some people to get treatment when they need it. Um, so, I mean, look at the legislation that's on the table. Make sure that you're out there voting and your voice is being heard. But at the local level, get involved. Uh, go to your local law enforcement agency and say, hey, how can I volunteer uh, to be a role player at your next CIT training? Or what can I do you know, to, 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 to be a part of this, to be a voice in it? Because we were always looking for help from our community members to come in and assist us with the training. So it, it opens up conversation between community and law enforcement. We're always learning something back and forth from each other, which is the way it should be, right? We should be lifelong learners and not have a fixed mindset, but a very open mindset and willing to learn. And um, at the end of the day, what you'll find out is we're really a lot more alike than you think we are. Agreed. Agreed. I tell you, uh, in one of the interviews I heard with you, and again, folks, the, the documentary is called Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops. You can find that on HBO or probably other venues right now. I really encourage you to watch it. It's just not that long, but there's a lot of learning there. I, I heard an interview you did, Ernie, where you you and Joe were going around and doing these screenings when the documentary first came out. And, and I guess maybe the, the takeaway for me for this program is apparently one woman approached you and said, my child would be alive today if you had responded to her house instead of someone else. Yeah, that one, uh, I still remember we were in Austin when that happened at South by Southwest. And um, it wasn't the only time we heard comments like that. Um, it's about human connection. And the community deserves the most professional response that we can give them. So it's our really our responsibility to, to take these trainings and be open-minded to it and understand that, you know, there's human lives at stake. Uh, people just don't wake up and want to call 911 and want the police to show up at their house. They really have no other resources when it comes to these types of crises. So... We're trying to expand the different type of alternative responses that we can bring our community members, but we also have a responsibility to be educating ourselves. Ernie, I get the impression this is a lifelong mission for you. It, it is. It's, uh, it's been a, a passion and a calling since 2003, and I don't feel myself slowing down in any time for him. All right. Uh, that's good to hear that. Again, ladies and gentlemen, check out the documentary, Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops. Um, it's also visit ErnestStevens.com. Stevens is spelled with a V. Uh, lots of good stuff there. You can get a, get a copy of his best-selling book as well. And I'd highly recommend that if you're a law enforcement officer, a training officer, a sergeant out there somewhere. It's called Mental Health and De-Escalation, a guide for law enforcement professionals. That's going to help you, and it's going to help our community. Ernie, thank you so much for spending some time with our listeners today. My pleasure. It's been an honor. Thank you, Ben. Ladies and gentlemen, that's another show in the books. Don't forget, you can find over 500 podcasts at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or also on all the streaming platforms, iTunes and Spotify and Google, wherever you want to look for us, you can find us. Please listen to this show and share these important messages with other people in your communities that need to hear them. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, as usual, all policies and procedures are to remain in place. Take care. to American Warrior Radio. Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.